Hello. Hi, welcome to another episode of Relay Essay. I'm your co-host with the mostest, Nadia Rosemont, and I'm here with the fabulous... Adam Kewen. We're almost done the season. Yeah, we just got a few more interviews left, and this one is a doozy. So if those are those of you might be new to the uh, Relay Essay, a little bit of an explanation. We are trying to celebrate, uncover, discover the student affairs professional across Canada. We interview colleagues, friends, uh, people that are new to us. And at the end of the interview, they recommend two people that we should interview, thereby continuing the relay of interviews for this podcast. Yeah, and this relay, I think, goes back to when a couple of seasons ago we interviewed Mark Solomon and Amy Gockel, and this was, uh, they gave me kind of a list of names that they recommended, and this was on the list, and it was very exciting. There's a lot, I'm a very, we, we were just talking about this, yeah. the best parts of this interview is very uh, the exciting to get to know yes. other folks in our profession. It's the best PD I think I've ever done. It's just kind of getting to the chance to sit down and talk with these people. And Rob was phenomenal. Amazing. Let's listen. All right, here we go. I will declare that I'm not the type to have any yes. It's worth all the shares. The number one podcast is student affairs. Want to hear what they have to say. Along with all the guests that have been on the way. Without further delay, it's me, they, yes, they. going all right um do you want to tell me your name rob shea rob shea thank you for sitting down with me to have this conversation uh what is your current uh occupation position and at what institution are you working at sure um my title is associate vice president of academic and student affairs at the fisheries and marine institute campus of memorial university okay and how long have you been there uh five years this july 3rd five years this july 3rd oh and we're sitting in my office here at U of T. So with no alcohol. With no alcohol for once. We're doing it without <laughs> any booze. Um, I, we have so much to talk about, even just doing some like preliminary stuff around your career. It's, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, but I'm wondering if you want to go back towards the, like, the beginning. Where did you do your undergrad? <laughs> I did my undergrad at Memorial. I had a very eclectic undergrad experience. It took me a long time to realize the opportunities that the university provided. Sure. So I spent a lot of years <laughs> in university. So I started in 1980 uh, doing a degree in business and then realized I didn't like quant and I didn't like accounting. Okay. Uh, so then I went to uh, do a degree in political science because I could do a minor in business. Okay. And there's a little bit of a funny story to it. So at Memorial at the time, you could only do a minor in business in either economics Okay. Or political science okay. as a major. Uh, so I did economics course, and I got a 50 in the first course I did. So I thought, well, if I want to do a minor business in economics, I probably should do that course over. So I did it over and got a 48. So I kind of decided very quickly that economics was not going to be my major. Fair enough. And as it happened, political science was, was a good field. I really loved the arts and uh, the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences now. Um, and then after that, went out and did some youth consulting uh, as a job, and then went back and did a social work degree. So yeah. I have an arts degree in political science and modern business, and I'm a bachelor of social work. And then at some point, you made the decision to do a master's as well. And that was at Memorial. It was too, at right? Memorial. Was uh, that right away or did you? It was, no, I went out and worked with an alternative school, which I always said I kind of peaked early career-wise because I went in as a counselor within a school system. Okay. The school was the first alternative school for what we call then kids who dropped out of the regular mainstream school and found their way back. But they had embraced an adult learning philosophy 
And so think about it. Kids who didn't thrive and had multiple barriers in the regular school system came, and then you treated them like adults. So if they didn't want to be there, they didn't have to be there. Right. The only thing we asked when they crossed the doorstep is that they had a willingness to learn. So okay. that's all we asked. Um, and then worked there and did adult basic education teaching, taught a career course, did personal counseling, um, and then kind of fell in love with the power of education and power in a good way in that it has an opportunity to change lives. So then I came back and did a master's in educational administration. The funny story was educational administration, there was no focus on post-secondary or higher education. Okay. So I did the principalship course. Right, right. I did school community relations. I did all of these courses that had really nothing whatsoever to do with post-secondary, which was what I wanted to be involved in. Um, and my instructors at the time, or my faculty at the time, were just wonderfully supportive, saying, yeah, we know that your love is post-secondary. We're going to let you do your term paper on post-secondary time. Nice. So it worked out really well. So there was some flexibility for you to focus on the higher ed stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, nice. And around, so was the master's kind of concurrently to um, the career, your career starting in higher ed? Like, what, yeah, what did that look like? it was. It was pretty cool, actually, because I had... Did a lot of work. I ran. I didn't run for any elected position within our student government. I did all the other jobs. So okay. I was chief electoral officer for the, the student union. I was the board of regents representative for two years. I, you know, did a multitude of other volunteer placements within the student union. That's where I started to get involved in post-secondary education and higher ed. And I use the term post-secondary and higher ed interchangeably. I like the term post-secondary more than I like higher education because when you use the term higher education, it presumes that there's a lower education. Right. And if that's higher education, well, the kindergarten to grade three is the lower. And I'll tell you that that's the root of either all evil or, that, <laughs> or that's the root of a really Absolutely. solid partnership between an individual and the education system. Mm. So kind of went through that piece. So I, I was in, engaged in, in post-secondary education and, and also the love of everything about universities and colleges. Um, and as a Board of Regents rep, we had a, a, what they call a surf and turf dinner for all the thank you for all the volunteers on the Board of Regents. So okay. you know, well, imagine I'm 21 years old and I'm sitting with all these lawyers and CEOs and everything else. Yeah. So we go to dinner and I sit next to the Dean of Students, who was the Chief Student Affairs Officer at Memorial at the time. So he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm thinking about a law school. Actually, I just got accepted to UMB. And he goes, why would you do something stupid like law? And I'm thinking like, this is the dream. I just did political science. It was a dream. He said, you should think about student services. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting, but what do you have to do? And he said, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And that was kind of my first little commentary at a closing banquet or a volunteer yeah. appreciation night that stayed with me for three or four years. And then I, when I did my master's, it was like, hmm, that's interesting. As it happened, while I was finishing up my year of residency, um, a job came up in residence life where all student services people somehow can engage. Some are you live in residence, you work in residence. And it was a one-year contract as manager of residence life because somebody was leaving. Okay. I had never lived in residence at Memorial because I grew up in St. John's. Uh, I'd never l did anything in residence, really. But now I was applying for a job as manager to of manage residence, the life residence life with a one-year course, all the courses done in my master's. Um, and what I had going for me, I think, at the time was the fact that I'd been on the Board of Regents. I had interfaced with the dean. Right. So when it came down to it, they said, so what experience do you have? I said, nothing in residence. But I said, I have all this other stuff. <laughs> So I think, you know, I'm not too sure if I was shortlisted or there was only one applicant, I'm not too sure, but I did simultaneously finish off my courses and residency and my master's and then start my higher education career as an acting manager of residence life. 
And then eight months into that job, I we created a new or they created a new department of uh, what was called employment services. So all the federal government operations that ran uh, placement offices on university campuses, they pulled the money and redirected it federally into a stay in school campaign or something. Okay. And so all those career offices uh, that were run by federal government on campuses ceased to exist, but they gave two year transition funding to certain universities. And Memorial got two years of funding. Of course, I'd worked part-time at the Career Center. So all of a sudden, I was the new acting manager of Career Services. Nice. So, yeah. That happened pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. It was, like, pretty cool. And then I never did went back to the alternative school. I went back and volunteered as chair of the board, but I never went back there. Boy, but I'm waiting to retire. I'll go back. <laughs> and so then has most of your career been at uh, Memorial or the Marine Institute? It has. Um, Memorial, 22 years at Memorial and four or five at Marine Institute. So, wow. Yeah, so it's 27 years. 20, yeah, 26, 27 years now this year. Um, so, yeah, it's been at Memorial. But, again, noting that I really wanted to play a role nationally. I didn't really want to leave Newfoundland. I absolutely love the province. Um, lucky to have opportunities within the only university in the province. Right. If there's 50 universities in your in your province, you have opportunities to sure. move. We have one. Gotcha. And so it's that's the game if you want to play at the university that you, you play in that one place. But nationally, I felt the need to kind of learn more about what was going on nationally. So then I got involved in, in SASA, which okay. is the Student Affairs and Services Association Division. Another funny story. All these stories are really funny and they're part of life, but they are all really funny. So we had the caucus conference in Newfoundland in 1994. Okay. Three years into my job, student services, absolutely loving it, realizing there's theory behind the stuff I do and all this new stuff I'm learning. So we had the, the student services conference. So the student affairs division, SAD, was the precursor to SASA. Yeah. Right? And so... That year, 94, was when they changed the name from SAD to SASA. <laughs> so, go figure. But they had no academic program chair for the SASA group. Okay. As it happened, the the program chair for all of the caucus conference was Dr. Brian Johnson, who was my former boss in Residence Life. Okay. So, he came and he said, oh, but you fit into the SASA. There's a SAD category. I said, I don't feel it. Fit. feel I fit into any SAD category on any level. He goes, no, no, this is a student affairs division. You can be the program chair. So I've never been to a conference. How do I know what the program chair does? Uh, don't worry, we'll help you through it. So I ended up becoming the program chair of the National Divisional Conference for SASA at the time. Amazing. And then connected with everybody. And then I thought, okay, well, how do I connect without leaving the province? How do I learn the great stuff that's happening across the country? So that's when I got involved in SASA and caucus and things like that. Yeah, your background. You've been on all of the boards yeah. pretty much at some point. Yeah. 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 It's been cool. I mean... Getting involved at a board level gives you a brand new appreciation for a lot of things. And we talked earlier about competency development. I mean, if you were to look at my plateaued in my career, for those people who plateau in careers, we all do at some point. I came back from doing my doctorate. So in 95, 96, I went to UBC to do my PhD in higher education. And both my parents got sick and really sick in palliative care. So I left my program and came back to take care of them. Okay. And... I came back and kind of was plateaued. Everybody who was above me had doctorates. I was got my course done, but didn't have my proposal. Da 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 da. Now taking care of elderly parents, so I really became plateaued. And when I look at my career, and although I was still manager of the employment center, um, 
it was my nonprofit experience that gave me all the different competencies. Mm. So you talk about conflict resolution at a national level when you're trying to bring in disparate groups, uh, when you're trying to give a voice, like we created that year when I was president of caucus, we created NASA, which was the National Aboriginal Student Services Association. Now it's, it, it is now because there's no more divisions. It is no longer there, but it gave a voice to folks. So it, you're, you're, you're going through this board position, either on the board or as a leader of the board, but you're learning all these competencies. And that really helped. And when I got an opportunity to apply for other jobs, mm. it wasn't the title of president or president of SASA or president of caucus. It was the skills that I gained by being in that role. Right. Right. And, you know, you deal with conflict resolution. You deal with lots of presentations, facilitation skills, you know, divergent thinking. You're meeting with key uh, people within the higher education community in the country. Yeah. There's a multitude of things that you can glean from that. So, mm. yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. And so when did you start getting involved with, um, is it IASIS? IASIS, yeah. So, IASIS began as, as Roger Ludeman, Dr. Roger Ludeman, who was a vice chancellor of student affairs in the States, it was run out of his basement, for lack of a better word. He had this concept of... And what is it? Sorry, before we go further, people might not... It's the International Association of Student Affairs and Services. Okay. It represents student services professionals in 52 countries around the world. Okay. Um, it has a little over 1,200 members right now. It's not membership fee-driven. There's no cost to anybody to be a part of it. Okay. And it, that was decided early on as a community development approach. It sure. Was, it wasn't a marketing thing. In that we weren't going to charge and they couldn't be part of our association. It was about people around the world couldn't afford to go to national conferences. Right. People couldn't afford to go to a caucus or a NASPA or an ACPA or whatever. So how do you give a voice to those people who are marginalized around the world but still are trying to do really, really good work? Yeah. So through my work with caucus, I connected with NASPA. And then at one of the events, I went to an international symposium, which is like a conference within a conference. And through there, I met Roger and Ken Osfield from Florida State and a few others. And they were really pioneers on the internationalization of student services. So how do you get people thinking it's not just study abroad. It's, it's about supporting student services professionals around the world, yeah. giving them a voice, but also giving them the theory and, and some opportunity to do research and all those kind of really cool things that we're so far advanced with, but we don't think we are in Canada or the States, but we really are. So learning that, so Roger had this running out of his basement. I was at a meeting when I said, Roger, you just got to like pony up on this. Like you either go big or go home type of thing. So he had then convened a meeting uh, at NASPA for a couple of hours one day and said, look, I'm thinking about going big time with this. What do you people think? Everybody in the room said, it's got to happen. It's mm. got to happen. Keep, don't charge fees if you can do it without fees. So what do you do? Run the International Association without fees. So then there was an opportunity to say, okay, what can we do next? So it was about building an organization from a community development approach that would have no fees but would offer all the resources of a traditional international association. So we got somebody to volunteer a website. We got somebody to volunteer to do a logo. We got somebody to volunteer to do the bylaws. We got somebody in another country to work on our articles in the corporation. We did all of that. So I was a member, a founding member of the organization. Mm. Then when Roger stepped back, because he had his two-year term, uh, I got a call one day saying, boy, are you interested in being a part of this? And uh, I think it was probably because they were looking for somebody outside of the U.S. at the time. And sure. I happened to be in Canada, and they knew me. So 
I said, yeah, it sounds like a really cool thing. So then we got involved. So we did some projects when I was um, chair of the board or, or president. And one of them was a, a development project in Haiti where we went over with a group called HELP, the Haitian Education Leadership Program. Student services in Haiti, the, the post-secondary structure is students go to school six days a week from eight in the morning to eight in the night. It's very much sage on the stage kind of delivery of curriculum. Okay. We're going to give it to you. You, you know, uh, give it back to us. Um, and then on Sundays, if they were a part of this scholarship program, they got to learn leadership skills. They got to learn okay. leadership skills and everything else. So they wanted us to come over and give them guidance as to. But they were truly... They were a scholarship-based organization, but they were truly the student services supports right, okay. for the universities in Haiti, which was really an interesting model. Um, so we went over and spent a week over there, and we, we there was three people, myself, Rich Zurich uh, from McGill at the time, and uh, another doctoral student who was, her parents were Haitian-born from Port-au-Prince, and we put out a call for participants. So we wanted anybody to have an opportunity to do this from around the world. 37 applications. So these are the folks. Rich Zurich, uh, while he was McGill Student Services, he worked for 11 years with Doctors Without Borders. Had that international experience. Spoke both French and English, which in Haiti it's important to know his French. So then Michelle comes from Michigan State who says, I'm doing my PhD on Haitian education in post-secondary. I speak a little Haitian. I, I like, we can... So we said, you're in. So the three of us went over. From that, we got some funding, and we put that money into the IASIS pot, which is still we're drawing from. There's not a lot of cost, so we draw from it every year. Um, and then we did uh, the Articles of Incorporation. We incorporated in Brussels, the home of the EU. So it's, it's, it's not incorporated in the U.S. or Canada or Mexico as a North American group. Uh, it's, it's incorporated in Brussels, uh, Brussels law. Okay. Um, so it truly is a... a international type of uh, home uh, we have a website we have a mentoring program now um, we have a global summit that we're co-hosting uh, with ACPA uh, next week actually in, in the middle of March and that's about 27 30 students from all over the world coming together for a leadership experience for three days amazing and uh, we do with NASPA we co-chair a global summit every two years uh, we did the first one in Washington DC the second one was in Rome in Italy, hosted by Yuka, um, and then the third one is in Chile, hosted by uh, the Chilean Student Services folks, uh, in partnership with IASIS and NASPA. And so that's the that's a, a really cool place to, to kind of grow that into. Of course, now I'm, I'm past president of the association now, so I'm kind of in an elder role now. So that's what happens when you get old. A historian. A historian. A historian. Yeah. A historian. A social <laughs> historian. But yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, that was the IASIS experience. And, you know, IASIS is one of those organizations where it, it truly is for people that are in student services that have an interest in this work, the world is your oyster. You just put up your hand and say, I have an interest in doing this. Right. And we're so starved for talent. We're so starved for new initiatives. This gives an opportunity for anybody who has an opportunity, has an interest in housing or leadership programs or career to step on. So I'd like to talk to people around the world on career. Yeah. Go do it. Trisha Seifert, who you probably well know here from Boise and is now in Montana. Montana. Uh, Trisha did a wonderful research piece uh, that she used the platform of IASIS and our membership list and put out surveys and got a huge response rate um, and did a wonderful piece of research on international professional development of student services people mm. and from around the world. So that's been really interesting. We've also had two books with UNESCO. Uh, one was the UNESCO World Conference, the first one they had. The second one I actually represented Canada at. Um, and we actually got, that was a really interesting one, the 
communique that came from the UNESCO World Conference in Higher Education, the first time they had it, did not include student services in the discussion document. Mm. It was all about faculty. It was all about research. So myself and Akim Oftemeyer Hyde, who's the uh, uh, general director, director general of Deutsch student work in Germany, we both said, this is not going to work. We really need to push this. So we worked with our ambassadors at the UNESCO uh, site on the World Conference and the communique that came out specifically mentioned student services professionals. So we got that into it. So the next time, we will build on that. So it will oh. be an opportunity to get that out there because this is a place of, it has to start at a political level for many countries. And UNESCO is that you know very wonderful UN kind of sure. body yeah. that allows credibility with do that so that worked really well and IAS has published two publications and we're into our third now so we'll have our third one come out at the next world conference in 2019 oh my gosh uh, yeah so that's pretty cool uh, that's pretty impressive from starting in someone's basement with absolutely. just a dream absolutely and Roger's still so passionate about it I mean it's been really interesting to watch his passion for that hmm has your experience in, in having these conversations with international colleagues like how has that influenced the work that you're doing in your current role well, I, I think you really just don't look at it from a myopic place. And I mean, we talk about Canada being big and full of diversity. I mean, really, it's not until you walk into a place like Haiti that you learn so much. Sure. I mean, you know, in our time in Haiti, I had a lot of takeaways. I mean, one of the best takeaways was we met with, we, we met with senior students on the first day we were there. And they were all like, hand out, hi, how are you today? I understand you're from Canada. How is it they understood world politics? They understood diversity. Like, they really got it. Very polished. And on the last day, we hadn't met with any first-year students. So we asked to meet with some first-year students. And, of course, we went into this forum in the room, and very much like this, and they were all standing up with their heads down looking at their phones. Mm. And I thought... There's no difference in our senior students who leave sure. our campuses after five years in North America and our first-year students who come to orientation, don't know anybody and keep their head down yeah. and don't want to interface with anybody. And we're trying <laughs> to bring them out of their... So it, no matter where you go in the world, it's, it's about that developmental piece of students. The other yes. piece is you understand how lucky we are in many things that we complain about with respect to our higher education institutions and access and that there's so many people in refugee camps that just don't have opportunity for access. Um, the other takeaway is that a lot of post-secondary, well, what we call higher ed or post-secondary in different countries, they use different names for student services professionals. Right. So you can't go in and say, I'm a student service professional. People look at you like, what are you talking about? Okay. So it's, it's about your nomenclature. It's about how you position what you do. Mm. Uh, so it gives you an opportunity to sit back and say, what do I actually do in my job? <laughs> how do I explain that to somebody <laughs> who doesn't understand the world of student services and affairs? Yeah. Uh, so there's an element of, of lots of takeaways. The other thing is that you realize that this is a small world. Mm. I mean, I met a, a young master's student um, from Azerbaijan uh, at a NASPA conference one time when we were just talking about the, the building of the IASIS, and we were putting out this UNESCO book, and I said, I'm doing something on post-conflict, post-disaster. Would you be interested? Because it was a conflict zone at the time. So would you be interested in writing something on that? Oh, I'd love to. She said, of course, master's student was just like, oh, my God. Right. So we did, and it was in the second issue of the – UNESCO World Conference. I, I'm on Facebook with her now, and I just found we're going to do a research article actually on experiential learning because they're trying to build that in, within. But she's now a senior official within the government of Azerbaijan in higher education at the government level. I mean, so you look at where people's careers go and you look at where that smallness of the world is, right. and you realize it's not about us going and, and talking about all the great stuff we're doing in post secondary education. It means nothing 
to somebody who doesn't have any food or a roof over their heads. Right. right? So it's, it's about dialing all that back and it's about understanding our theory is all based on, for the most part, North American research. You can't take that to Haiti or you can't take it to Chile and you can't take it to other places. You have to give them the voice and the building blocks to allow them to do their own research. Right. And that's a, a critical piece. And then it's interwoven between my work in student services and my work in administration and my faculty work because I'm a faculty member in the faculty of education as well. So that allows me to do that. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about next was you've got this kind of really um, stellar kind of research career that you've like also built for yourself. I don't know and, if it's stellar, Adam. <laughs> well, if, uh, if my um, research is correct, there is a Rob Shea Research Award. <laughs> There's an award named after you. That's weird, yeah. Well, it's amazing. Like, people don't normally name awards after, like, no, living no, no. people. So I that's know. pretty... I liked it so much. I give money every year. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, where did where did you find your, your passion, your interest, your, your um, drive to participate in research? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think I was in housing one day. Who knows where it came from? But I, I can give you one story. I was in housing one day, and we were dealing with some student issue. This is 91 now. And I looked over at Dr. Johnson, Brian Johnson, who was the director of housing at the time. I looked over his bookcase and I said, what are all those things over there? Right. And he said, they're journals on student housing. I said, there's a journal on student housing? Like, people research this stuff? Like, I just thought I was doing the work I was doing. So I went over and looked at it and went, it's actually good quality research. Of course, I was doing my master's thesis at the time. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And then Donna Hardy came back, was the first person in Canada, really, with a, ma a doctoral degree in student development theory from the University of Maine. And Donna and I worked really closely together, so it was like, huh, we can kind of do doctorates in it. And very quickly we realized academics base their whole life work, whether it be researching the fruit fly or <laughs> researching whales or whatever it may be, that's their whole focus, and it's all about evidence-based research. Mm -hmm. and we quickly looked around and said, this country doesn't have a lot of doctorates right. in this field. Yep. We had a lot of people who were in senior leadership roles who were the coach of the varsity basketball team and was a nice person and had a master's in something and ended up becoming you know, a senior chief student affairs, which were phenomenal. They're the foundation. They're the historical leads of our, our, our profession. Yep. Uh, a huge amount of debt of gratitude. But I saw quickly that universities were starting to say, well, why do you do that stuff? You know, it's a lot of fun. We see you giving away T-shirts, you know, lots <laughs> yep. of, you know, pizza parties. Yep. And students seem happy around you, but we have no clue what you do. So then it was like, well, how do we develop evidence-based research to build on what we're doing? So in 2005, uh, a faculty position became available in our faculty of education. So Memorial has the first master's um, program in the country on student services. Started in 1997, 98, 98. Um, so watching that unfold and then saying, okay, where do I see myself? So I did my master's, then I did my one-year doctorate, and then I had to give that up at UBC because my parents were sick, and so I kick-started my program at the University of Calgary in 2003. Okay. So this faculty job comes up in 2005, and I'm like, mm, I'm still mid-career, I'm still, you know, haven't done my doctorate finished yet, and they said, well, I'm going to go apply and see what happens, so I applied got the job, which Amazing. is, you know, this weird opportunity to get into a faculty position without and a tenure track without a doctorate. Um, so got into that, and then, of course, that was my world now. It's about teaching and learning. It's about, you know, um, research and service. So my service was to the national community and career and, and student services, and internationally through IASIS, and then my research was all around career development, student development, student leader, uh, leadership. Uh, higher education leadership and administration. So they were my kind of areas, and specifically around experiential learning and career. 
Uh, so then got involved in a number of different associations around that. So, so I got involved in evidence-based research and then set up a journal in the Canadian Journal of Career Development in 2002. So that's yeah. 15 years old now. That's one of my other questions. How does one start a journal? It was weird. It was really weird. I mean, it was something I just wanted to do. I thought there was a need for it. Again, I was plateaued to a certain degree. And okay. what do you do at your job? And um, i just come back in 95, 96. I was in BC and, and kind of came back and said, well, I don't want to live anywhere else. So what am I going to do with my extra time if I wasn't commuting every day? Right. Because I'm anywhere in five minutes in St. John's anyways. Um, so there was an element of, okay, well, what do we do? So I said, there's probably a need for this Canadian Journal of Career Development. So as luck would have it, we call it happenstance in career theory. Yeah. Um, kind of had the idea, reached out to a few people, including Marilyn Van Norman, who was director of career services here, mm-hmm. and said, what do you think? And she said, oh, well, that sounds like a really good idea. You should probably think about that. And I knew Marilyn through Casey, the Career Educators and Employers Group. And so I said, hmm, that's interesting. So I started, so I went to this guy, Jim Black, who was an associate dean at arts and ran this journal on linguistics. So I went to Jim one day and I said, I'm thinking about this journal on career development. Oh, that's wonderful. Of course, editors like other editors. Like, <laughs> and I said, but I, I just got my master's. I don't have my doctorate done. I'm not a faculty. Don't let that stop you. He said, so he gave me this booklet, which was spiral bound. And he said, oh, here's the how-to, how to set up journals in Canada. Said, like legit, someone had legit. prepared a resource on how to start journals. Not only is it legit, there was actually an association called the, it's a learned society, the Canadian Association of Learned Journal Editors was a society in Canada of the Congress of Humanities and Social Science. Amazing. It was actually an association. So he said, here, they just put this out. How do so it was like a step-by-step guide to setting up journals. The difference we did was when we did it, there was another group in Canada that was also thinking about it. When we launched it, it was a press of a button, this is a true story, at a Christmas party in the Career Center. I had all this ready to go. I had students, student employees working on it, kind of framing it out, what it looked like. And I never had the confidence just to press send to all my listservs across right. the country. And I was at a Christmas party one night, and one of my students came to me and said, did you ever set up that journal? I said, no, I still got it. He said, I like, did up an email for you. Like, it's all text. It's got an attachment. It's got everything ready to go. Why don't you just do it? And I said, oh, so I pressed the button on like December 12th or something one year and uh, came back in on work on Monday and had 137 responses from people across the country and around the world. I said, brilliant, like do this. And then about a year later, I got a call from the Counseling Foundation of Canada, which I'm now on the board for, Private Philanthropic Foundation in Canada, who said, I understand you're setting up a journal. We'd like to talk to you about that. So I talked to him, and I was going to put it out. He said, how are you going to fund it? I said, I don't believe I'm funding it. <laughs> and they said, so is it, you know, is it in French and English? I said, I have no money to put it in French, but if I had money, I'd, you know, transfer, yeah. transfer a couple of articles in French, or I could get French articles and transfer them in English. Oh, we're, we're really interested in that, and we'd like to fund you for your initial couple of years. So in 2002 at NatCon, which was then now, it's now called Connexus, uh, National Consultation on Career Development, 1,100 career professionals, in Ottawa, and we launched the journal, our first hard copy issue of the journal. Still have it on the wall. Um, and now we have thousands of subscribers around the world. Uh, we've partnered with all kinds of different organizations. So we put it out two issues a year. One, both are open access, so it doesn't cost anything. Compliments of the Counseling Foundation of Canada, which still funded to this day. Uh, we have an associate editor who takes care of all the day-to-day stuff. And um, it really has grown in leaps and bounds. Field of Dreams is really what it is. It's grown in leaps and bounds. So some of that stuff has been... Do you, I feel like you, um, there's a through line about some of your 
um, opportunities that you've taken up where you, it's very, uh, for lack of a better word, like entrepreneurial, where you're like seeing an opportunity and kind of kind of making something happening and, and engaging folks along the way to kind of make things happen. Absolutely. Is there anything that's like currently um, on the books? Is there any other projects or are you kind of just like stoking the fires of these past projects or? So I can't, how can I say this? So I got sucked back into administration, right? So I was in a faculty job, which is a dream job. I always say it's better than being a Canadian senator because you don't have to retire at 75. Right. Like you really, and it, it, it's a dream job. If you love and you have a passion for what you're teaching and researching, you, it, there's no work. Right. It, it's just a lot of fun. Right. Um, so I had this dream job, and I got sucked back into administration. And yep. it was like, oh, well, go parlay your talents here. So <laughs> I went back as an acting dean of student services and reorganized the whole unit at Memorial to be a deputy provost student uh, while I was still acting. Then moved to the Marine Institute and spent the last five years up there overseeing the academic side. So in that whole period of time, in the last, two, last year and a half, a year and a half, two years, I've had to really step back and say, okay, look, you're moving into what conceivably could be the last five years of your career. It won't sure. be, but I, I'm conceivably, I, I can be retired in five years. So what is your life's work? And I think mm. those, they happen at different points in your career. So if I look at my own career, they happened when I was plateaued. Do I want to stay in student services? It happened at another point where there was opportunities to go travel and, and to work in other countries around the world and other, and other places in Canada. Said no to those opportunities. Those are defining moments when you decide, okay, I'm staying in Newfoundland, or right. I'm going to stay in student services, mm -hmm. or I'm going to go back to administration. And I think in a lot of those defining moments, and what I've encountered in the last two years to answer your question, was what do you want this to look like? Mm. So the journal will be 20 years old oh, in another sounds, three years. That's amazing. And, and I've been an editor of that. So at some point in time, that has I've got to give that up. Like I've got to pass it on. The torch has to be passed to somebody else. In the caucus world, I, I've been no longer president, and, and I'm no longer on the board, so then what does that look like? I've been president of SASA. I've been president of the Canadian Education Research Institute for Counseling. I'm now on the board of the Counseling Foundation of Canada. All of those were social entrepreneurship has been my event, and it, you're right. It does a really cool thing to pick up on. It is really, truly social entrepreneurship right. at its finest. I love nonprofits. Yeah. Love building, love transforming, love servant leadership stuff. That's who I am. Mm. What I've gotten to now is, Okay, let's step back. Let's take a breath. What's the next thing you're doing? So what does the next project look like? Or is there a next project? I'm not too sure. I'm, I'm enjoying my time on the Council Foundation Board. I'm enjoying my time going in and doing keynotes and experiential learning and um, those kind of things. So I'm really I'm at that point where I'm just trying to figure out what that could look like. So two things are in the hopper. One is uh, we've just completed a five-year uh, research study of what we call career integrated learning, which is doing working with faculty members. And it, it got, Conference Board of Canada just came out with a report this week on it, too. It's been a conversation in Canada about skills gap. And I've always felt there's not a skills gap. There's lots of people here to do the work. Right. It's how people are framing their competencies Absolutely. to actually say, I have it. The TD Bank came out with a report which really confirmed that thinking as well. So I've been trying to make the conversation about, well, what happens in the classroom? Every student has to go to class, mm. either online or in, in bricks and mortar. What are they taking away from that 36 hours of contact? Mm. So the competencies that you gain from teamwork, in, in group work, yep. the competencies you gain from presentations in your classroom. I've seen PhD students who have came to me with their PhD in hand and said, can you tell me what I can do with this? Like, 
or 12 years of education in post-secondary, you're asking me what to do with it. Yeah. That is wrong mm-hmm. on a multitude of levels. Yeah. So all the research that's coming out of uh, Canadian Association of Graduate Schools, all the research that's coming out about the disconnect between masters and PhD students in the humanities and social sciences and sciences, every discipline to come out with a PhD, people are wondering, what do I do with it, right? right. So part and parcel is this career integrated learning project, which has been some amazing stuff. So it just got picked up by the Education Advisory Board in Washington, D.C. as a promising practice, nice. um, which is great. Um, it's been picked up by a number of different organizations. Wilfrid Laurier just retitled a lot of their work. They embrace career integrated learning. Uh, I think they have over 2,000 students involved in the projects now. Nice. So that's kind of where I am right now. Um, that project will continue. We're looking for another funder for that now, so we're exploring some options. Um, I think I will stay at that for a couple of years, but that's kind of my life work anyways. Yeah. Then it's the, and that blends my higher education, student services, and career fields and love. Mm-hmm. So that's a nice dovetail into that. The second thing that we're kind of working on now is, is a proposal for UNESCO chair um, in that I've been involved with UNESCO for a number of years now. Um, they have this process called UNESCO chairs, which becomes a, a chair in a specialization. So okay. in my current role is around technical vocational educational development and learner development. So again, it's mm. about student development yep. in colleges and universities around the world, but specifically around small island states. So kind of looking at that from a Newfoundland perspective and the fisheries perspective as well. So, Oh, gosh. All kinds of cool stuff. That around. sounds so cool. Yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff around. Um, that's amazing. And I think it's a testament that I feel like another through line has just been service. Like throughout all, everything that you've done, it's it's been um, in collaboration and in service back to the field and in, in part of a... A larger. That's why this kind of stuff is really weird to talk about. I'm really not good on interviews. I'm really not good on interviews because everything I've done has been about a team, and it's not team as in oh let's rally a team and you know somebody's got to sit at the head of the table. I never sit at the head of the table, by the way. I I always sit somewhere else. I never like the head of the table. And part and parcel of that is is it allows me to in my current work and, and my current volunteer stuff to say, and my past volunteer stuff to say, look, we're all equal. I'm playing a role. It's like a university president. A university president, for me, is very much the senior professor. Mm. It's not about the CEO. It's not about the chief administrative officer. It's not about chief academic officer, which would be the provost, would be the academic. It truly is about that senior professor who's been at the university for a long time and has something else to give the leading of the university. But it is just one role. It's a, a... Completely important role, yes. but it isn't only one role. Universities won't exist with just a president. Correct. Universities won't exist with just students and no teachers. It won't exist. It'll be just a tech practice. It's just professors doing research. So it's about how that comes full circle. And you're right. Somebody once challenged me to define my, my leadership style. Yep. So there's two things. If you do these, uh, there's two things came out for me. One was servant leadership. That was the most predominant. I serve others. So within my current job, my volunteer job, I'm serving other people. The other one is transformational. Mm. I don't get I don't get excited about managing. <laughs> I really don't. And when I get to a point in my career, I've changed my my career path. Not changed it, but I've changed jobs every five years. Mm. So in the 30, 30 odd years I've been involved, I've gone every five years or four years, I move into another part of the university. Okay. Into another job or another position or another area of responsibility or faculty versus administration. I've been kind of moving around and that's kept me, I think, engaged more than traditionally just being in that student services piece that has just kept me in just one, one focus. Um, 
and the transformational piece really gets me excited about stuff. So the stuff that I've done has been around building, and then I leave it to other people who are better managers than I am. <laughs> Amazing. I have one last hard-hitting question, and then before we go into our lightning round. So I understand from our, our research team that you're a big fan of another celebrated scholar, Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and the question is, if you could develop a course or syllabus based on one Dr. Seuss book, what would it be? In oh my goodness, <laughs> how Can would I you use three? it? Sure. Okay, so it'd be on gerontology, hop on pop. Amazing. Uh, marine ecology, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, and philosophy. Oh, the things you can think. Uh, I think all of those are Dr. Seuss titles. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the big one is that the one I've used in all my presentations, or in a lot of presentations, but I had to stop because I was just using it too much, um, was all the places you'll go. Yeah. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, and you can steer yourself any direction you choose. And if you look at my career and you know, the stuff I've been involved in, that's really what I've done. You know, in early days, my mom developed Parkinson's. I was young. I was living at home. I was in grade nine. There was no services in Newfoundland. So what do you do? You know, so I called Toronto and said, is there any services in Newfoundland? They said, no, but if you want to set up something, I'm 19. And they said, you want to set up something, we'll you know, go for it. So I was president of Newfoundland Labrador Parkinson's Society when I was 21 years old. Like, so there's an element of you have feet in your shoes and you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. Right. But without, you can have all the brains in your head you want. Without your feet in your shoes, yeah. the two don't, don't go anywhere. Right. So mm. That's my Dr. Seuss. Brilliant. Oh, Dr. Seuss was brilliant. I know. So I've much. never had an original thought in my life. <laughs> I just borrow from everybody else who would come before me. Amazing. Um, so, rapid fire questions. You don't have to think too much about them. Um, favorite Olympic sport? Oh, rowing. Rowing. Um, last book you read? Uh, oh, um, Higher Calling by James Beardsley. Okay. Um, what is something folks would be surprised to learn about you? I'm pretty well an open book. Okay. Um, I love Hawkins cheesies. Okay. Um, do you have any nicknames? Uh, no, I don't think so. You better ask some of my friends. <laughs> I'm called Bob from time to time. Fair enough. Um, if you were to host a podcast of your own, what would it be about? Oh, I would do this one, but you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you were to trade life with one person for one day. Who would it be? Oh, my goodness. My grandfather. Nice. Who was dead before I, I was born, long before I was born. But he was the last member of responsible government in Newfoundland. When government gave up, uh, he was MHA for the Fairland District, and gave up, and that's when Newfoundland gave up its independence. And so he was the last one before the government of Britain came in and, and set up a commission of government and took over uh, the responsible government of Newfoundland and Labrador. And then we became part of Canada after that. But he was a member of the last uh, responsible government, Newfoundland. My. Yeah, so I'd like to find out a little bit more about him. If you were to uh, make a time capsule that, if opened in 100 years, would tell the story about what's going on in our campuses and in our field, what are some of the things that you would throw in that time capsule? Oh. Something that's really impacted me in the last little while, because we've been doing a lot of work in Nunavut and Iqaluit and, and fisheries training and, and working with communities in Pond Inlet and Rankin Inlet and Pangerton and places like that, is around the whole understanding of what our indigenous leaders have left us. Because I think we're missing something on, in this country 
I think we're really on our campuses really missing something about indigenous leadership. Mm. And that, and it's not about an indigenous scholar being a leader or a person of indigenous heritage being a leader. It's it's about that leadership style. Sure. Whether it be talking, whether it be smudging, whether it, it's just about that whole concept of what what is that about, and and how that would really change our universities. Mm. Um, I'm a firm believer. I love to see new buildings. We all need new buildings and everything else. But I'd like to see as much effort put into the teaching and learning, the experiential learning funding, uh, than is being put into building new buildings. Right. And so I'd like to put something in a capsule that denotes that kind of thinking sure. that we don't get 100 years out and people are still building buildings and not putting any money into students. Yeah. And that that at some point has to reconcile itself. Um, I'd like to put in some of the conflicting things that are happening in our country and, and, and our campuses and, and how sometimes we consider them new challenges and they're really not new challenges, right? I yeah. mean, like we're going through it because we've never had that. And I see that on our own campus that people come in who look at our challenges and go, well, that's a brand new challenge, like budget. That's not a new challenge. I watched 30,000 fishermen be laid off in 1992. Right. Like, we've been there before. Like, and how do we lead in that? And how do we get through those difficult times? We take those lessons. But if you've never been there, how do you take those lessons and transport them? So something around those lessons of how people got through difficult times, personal difficult times and, and, uh, and professional difficult times. Uh, I think that would be a, a, nice, a nice gift to somebody 100 years from now. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, the last question we have, which we ask everyone we interview because it's a relay, who should we interview next and why? Donna Hardy-Cox. Okay. So Donna, uh, we've worked together as colleagues for many, many years. She's the Dean of School of Social Work at Memorial now. Um, was one of the first people in Canada to go, if not the first, to go get her doctorate in student development theory and was a former president of caucus. Um, so she really, truly brought a team together in student development theory in 1995. Okay. Was one of the co-leads of the brand new Masters in Student Services in 1997-98. Wrote the curriculum, <clears throat> got it approved by Senate, all while being a Student Services Administrator. Come on, that's yeah. unbelievable. Right. So there's there's a real element of a story that I think Donna's story hasn't really been told as much as it could be, uh, because well, she's now in social work, right? <laughs> right, and I mean I can look up on my bookshelf and I've got the books that she's done with Carney Strange and like it's probably on most people's bookshelves that's yeah. supporting students and supporting diverse students and absolutely yeah she's and literally written the book she has yeah she has and when you as we've talked a lot about transformational and building uh, things in this last little while it truly is when you look at how difficult it was for her and Carney to not only build that book build a thought concept around it get other authors to write articles and chapters and get funding for it and I mean I remember the McGill Queens University Press conversation happening what that meant and how getting it through a, a university press in, in Canada was very different than getting it through a university press in the US which is where Carney came from but also introducing us to those pieces yeah. and uh, I, I think that her story needs to be told Amazing. Uh, because it is a very, very inspirational story. There is a very um, selfish part of this podcast where it's a really good excuse to talk to people who I just am thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to and have an excuse to. And this conversation was one of them. And the, the chance to talk to Donna will be another one. So thank you so much for making that suggestion. Absolutely. Glad to pass on the relay. Do I get to tell her I told her? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we've got it on record now. Oh, we can good. send her the podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Totally my pleasure. All right. Wasn't that so good? Yeah. <laughs>
It's like a banter. It's good. <laughs> uh, and I'm just so grateful. Again, it was kind of like when we were interviewing Ian Cull. Um, Rob just happened to be in Toronto, and so he was popping by U of T, just generously gave 45 minutes of a time to sit down and have this interview. It was phenomenal. Yeah, I learned so much. For those of you that want to continue learning from Rob, he is also on the Twitter at Rob J. Shea. Uh, I am at Nads Roses, and Adam, yours is? At Adam Kewen, K-U-H-N. And so folks are, are tweeting about mm-hmm. it, or talking, or want to engage in the conversation about uh, what we're trying to do here with the podcast, please feel free to use the hashtag RelayEssay. Um, we're also trying to promote the hashtag SACDN, like Student Affairs Canadian mm-hmm. um, hashtag, so we can all be part of a, a larger conversation. The show is not complete without our fabulous theme song, so a huge... Thank you to Adrian Ross, the artist and friend, for creating it for us. And just before we wrap up this particular interview, just an invitation. If anyone has any ideas or thoughts or inklings or curiosities Mm -hmm. about podcasts or interviews or stories that they want to share, um, we are more than willing to talk about options around collaborating or sharing our SoundCloud account and iTunes account to get your information out there. Um, We're just very interested in collaborating and hearing lots of different types of stories and voices about our profession in higher ed in Canada. Yes, reach out. Do it. Yeah, don't be afraid. We're we're nice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye.